Welcome to the commonplace read aloud. This is so much fun. I really enjoyed reading Charles Dickens, a Christmas Carol with you all. And I hope that you enjoyed listening to it. So back when I lived in Virginia beach, I had the privilege of meeting the most amazing lady, Mary Mann. She is also an author and obviously a reader. And she wrote a book of short stories. And of course I bought it on Amazon and absolutely loved it. And in that book of short stories, there is a book. Uh, would you call it a, a sequel or a fan fiction? I'm not sure what it's called, um, but it's about a Christmas carol. And it totally gave me all the goosebumps and the chills and, and everything that you love out of a good story. So I reached out to Mary and asked her if she would read out loud to us. And she said, yes. <laughs> so here she is. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here and everybody working with time zones. So thank you. So Mary was born in Portsmouth, Virginia, and she lives in Virginia still. She is an, you guys read her bio on Goodreads. She is an amazing bio. She's been reading since she was a kid. And I can testify that where she lives and writes is absolutely stunning, gorgeous, beautiful. We did some workshops out there. Oh my goodness. It's, you know, on the water with the view. It's just beautiful. She's traveled the world, France, Italy, Spain, uh, and more <laughs> and Parisian by heart, which is the, um, short story book that I referred to. It was a quarter finalist in Amazon's breakthrough novel award in 2011. And she is interested in ancient histories, native cultures, and art. She has so much experience. And, and I feel like any one of us could just sit down and listen to her talk for hours. So Mary, welcome. And we're so grateful you're here. And is there anything you would like to say to introduce the short story to us before you begin the read? I try to write like as if I was retelling the story with a different ending. And I have a complete set of Dickens works that my husband bought me and it took me an entire year to read through the complete set. Wow. And when I was done, I felt like um, I can't write like Charles Dickens. I wish I could, but I'm gonna give this story a little shot. The story style of that one is different than the style in the, of the other ones in the book. I thought it was amazing how you're able to just move between those styles. Did you read Dickens when you were uh, young, when you were a kid? I believe so. Probably only Christmas Carol. <laughs> right, right. Classic. I remember my mom reading that and of course, The Tale of Two Cities. Madame Dufage. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody has their crochet project in hand, ready to listen. 
I'm ready to listen. We're all just so excited and ready. So without any further delay, let's let author Mary Mann read to us her very own work. Thank you. I call this being a ghost story of Christmas. It's my salute to Charles Dickens. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laugh to see the alteration in him, but he let them let them for was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes and grins as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterward. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us and all of us. And so as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us everyone. Stave one. So ends Mr. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, or to give it its full title, A Christmas Carol in Prose, being a ghost story of Christmas. And a more heartwarming, tender, lovely story of Christmas and redemption is hard to imagine and yet frightening and dark as well. I am told that it is extremely popular and makes Mr. Dickens an increasing amount of wealth and fame, which I dare say he deserves. But with these final words of the tale told so movingly and so full of cheer and hope, there is one small problem. It is not the truth. Why would Mr. Dickens end the story in lies? Perhaps to end the story with more finality or perhaps because the truth would be too demoralizing, too much at variance with this warmest of stories? Perhaps. Mr. Dickens knew he was telling a tale and I, better than anyone else, know that the end was quite different. How do I know this? My name is Ebenezer Scrooge. It was true, as Mr. Dickens has written, that I was as good as my word and better. I honored Christmas in my heart and kept it all year long. I lived in the past, the present, and the future, and kept their lessons to me alive in my thoughts and in my life. In the words of Jacob Marley, as he spoke them to me on the night of my great conversion, I made mankind my business and the common welfare of all humanity, charity and mercy, forbearance and benevolence, all became my business as it were. Marley offered me the chance and hope of escaping a fate such as his, in the form of the three spirits that haunted me that night. And come the morning, Christmas morning, I took it and embraced it, held it close to me until the day of my death, which by the way is today, or so I am told. But I get ahead of myself. Let us return to that Christmas day, that bright and beautiful day full of hope and life after my night of darkness and terror. Mr. Dickens has written of that day in a far better manner than I ever could. How cold it was, a crisp, 
snapping cold to bring a redness to one's nose and cheeks. How brilliant and white the snow was and how it reflected the sparkling lights of the shop windows glinting in the morning sun. I did indeed stick my head out of the window and look with joy upon the multitudes of people in the street, rushing about with parcels, parcels in their arms, calling out greetings and wishes for a Merry Christmas to each other. I added my voice to the others and sent a boy to buy the biggest turkey and had it sent around to Bob Cratchit's. I could just imagine his family's surprise when that great bird arrived on their doorstep and how they would wonder and ask each other who could possibly have sent it. I chuckled to myself as I rushed to dress in all my best and hurry out to the streets to be a part of the joyous Christmas crowd. Stopping to give the door knocker a pat as I went out the door, I remembered how it had for a moment become the face of Jacob Marley the night before. Now it was nothing but a brass knocker again, but I gave it a grateful stroke regardless. The two men who had come to me the day previous asking for donations for the poor to whom I had said such horrible unfeeling things I was overjoyed to meet with next. I made up for my heartless words and clenched hands with a large contribution such that the men were astounded. I felt that chain that Marley had shown me his own but his words telling me that my own was longer and more grievous than his. I felt that chain growing lighter and giggled and clapped my hands like a schoolboy. People on the street looked at me as if I had lost my mind and indeed I had. I had lost the mind I had all the years previous and I had Jacob Marley and the spirits to thank for that loss. My own spirits faltered some when I approached my nephew's door. This young man, my poor dead sister Fan's son, I had treated as if he were a faceless begging stranger. Nay, even if he had been a nameless stranger, I had treated him and all the rest of humanity badly. That thought overcame my hesitation and drove me to their door and through it. I will let Mr. Dickens words stand as the description of that day and the time I spent with my nephew and his wife and their families and friends. Mr. Dickens has written that it was a wonderful day, and so it was, but it was also a melancholy time in its way, for there was so much of my sister in her son that it tore at my heart at times to see her eyes in his face and hear her voice in his merry laugh. And there was a shadow about my niece by marriage, a shadow that I glimpsed out of the corners of my eyes that seemed to whisk itself away if I tried to put my eyes full upon it a shadow that was mirrored under her dark eyes and in the dimples around her mouth. I feared it was a shadow with which I was not unfamiliar. The next day I hurried to my office. My great hope was to be there before Bob Cratchit so I could catch him coming in late. My hope was realized and I had great fun watching Bob's face as I ordered him to buy it and raised his salary and began the changes in the old dreary office that had filled my head in the night. At first, Bob, like the crowds outside, for by now my word had spread around the town of my behavior, was convinced he was now working for a crazy man and that I was headed for Bedlam. But soon enough, though he still watched me sidelong as if I may suddenly snatch at him, 
he began to believe that I had indeed become a changed man. I closed the office early that day, much to the dismay of the people still passing by the window, hoping for a glimpse of the changed Ebenezer Scrooge. I invited myself to dinner at the Cratchits' home and told Bob to precede me to his home and prepare his good wife and family for my arrival in another hour. In that hour, I went to the butchers, the bakers, and the candlestick makers, as well as the toy makers, the linen drapers, and the lace makers, and purchased enough goods to supply 10 families with the merriest, warmest, and cheeriest Christmas ever, disregarding the fact that it was one day late. I had it all delivered to the Cratchits and then delivered myself to their door. Again, I experienced a faltering of my spirit when I approached the Cratchit's humble doorway. I had not forgotten on the night of my conversion of how I had overheard Bob's wife's description of myself, an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man. A man who, if she but had him before her, she would give a piece of her mind to feast upon and hope that he would have good appetite for it. I confess I did not have a good appetite for it although I knew full well that I deserved it. I stood across the street and watched the family through the dingy window that looked into the tiny, tumble-down, forlorn house and knew that the house and all that was cold and meager and pitiable within it, that it all could be laid at my feet. I trembled and shivered, but not from the cold. Within, I could see the entire Cratchit family all aghast as the parcels and packages arrived at their doorstep. I could see that already every flat surface available from the small rickety table that looked ready to collapse under its load to the mantelpiece over the small fireplace and even the floor was covered with the purchases I had made and more were arriving as I stood and watched. Mrs. Cratchit was turning in circles, flapping her hands as she tried to direct the delivery boys and where to place the parcels and the children in helping with what they could and in keeping Bob and Tiny Tim out of the way all at the same time. It was a lively scene and I chuckled to see it and to see them in such a state of confusion. But that state was as nothing compared to the one that followed my arrival into their home. A home in which I confessed to my shame, I had never set foot nor gave a thought to in all the years that Bob Cratchit had worked in Scrooge and Marley's counting house nor any thought of Bob or his family. Once Bob Cratchit had left the office for the evening and was gone from my sight, he would be gone as well from my mind, as if he had no existence outside the counting house. I had never spent a moment thinking of how he and his family fared on the paltry salary. Marley and I had begrudged him. Now I would see my eyes were open and as Mrs. Cratchit had said, I hoped to have a good appetite for it. I did not, but to her credit, she did not give me that piece of her mind she had promised only two nights before. She and the children, the two older girls, Martha and Belinda, Peter, the oldest son, the younger boy and girl, and of course, tiny Tim, gave me a fine welcome and an embarrassing amount of thankfulness for the many items now filling the tiny four-roomed house with light and warmth and mouth-watering smells. I knew, nay, we all knew, that they had much more to damn me for than thank me, the greatest thing being the health of the beloved child who now sat upon my knee. 
I vowed that not another day would pass before I would see Tiny Tim in the care of the best doctors and would see that shadow behind his eyes banished. <clears throat> At length, there was some order imposed on the room. The table was spread with linen, which was soon hidden by platters of food and jugs of cider and of milk and mulled wine. As I had promised Bob before we left the office, there was a huge cauldron of smoking bishops sitting upon the hearth, so large that Tiny Tim could have easily fitted himself inside of it, were it not full of oranges and port wine. I had to send round to the pub for mugs and cutlery and plates, but soon all had their hands busy with steaming glasses, plates piled high. <coughs> Excuse me. Forks and spoons flashing and all mouths busy with trying to eat and drink and talk and laugh at once. Myself, no less than the others. My voice is going. <coughs> As I have said, Tiny Tim sat upon my knee and I held his plate and mug for him while he plied his fork with a little bite of this and another little bite of that. But in the midst of our merriment, I heard the sound of his fork being laid onto the plate and felt his little hand tug at my lapel. I bent my head towards his so that Tiny Tim could whisper in my ear. Thank you and God bless you, Mr. Scrooge. If I had thought my heart was full before at those words, it was near to busting out of my waistcoat. You are welcome, my child, but come, you must eat some more so that you can grow strong and well. He lowered his head and his thin shoulders began to shake and I saw that he was crying. What is wrong, my son? What grieves you on this joyous day? He raised his head and pointed towards the window I had been looking in earlier. The window panes were lined with faces from top to bottom and side to side, rows of pinched and cold faces of shivering children, of thinly clad women and of shame-faced men. The sounds of our happy party died as Tiny Tim's family followed his pointing finger and saw the faces of their neighbors and friends. There was shame on Bob Cratchit's face as well. I stood holding Tony Tiny Tim in my arms and turned to address Mrs. Cratchit. May I invite them in, my good woman? Her mouth and eyes formed large O's as she stammered out, yes, why yes, of course. I carried Tiny Tim to the door. It was only a matter of a few steps and threw it open. The faces at the window all jumped back. Come in, I cried, and Tiny Tim added his thin voice to mine. Welcome. Enter, my dear friends, there is plenty for all and plenty more to be had after that. Tiny Tim laughed and clapped his hands at my words. The little children rushed in first and the Cratchit daughters, Martha and Belinda, were quick to serve them. The women followed more slowly and the men slower still, but soon there was a stream of people warming themselves by the fire and with the smoking bishop and hot food. I put Tiny Tim into his chair nearest the fire he was soon surrounded by a small army of warm and now fed, well-fed children, and he busied himself with handing around roasted chestnuts. 
The sound of merriment had returned to the room 10 times over, and I would swear that there was none within the room merrier than myself. I made my way back to the door to peer into the street to see if there was anyone else out there that I could invite inside to partake of our feast. I fancied myself a veritable Fezziwig and could understand now his joy in providing some poor enjoyment to his friends and employees. The street was empty and quiet. The street lamps had been lit and gave off a dim gray glow in the twilight's deepening darkness. I say that the street was quiet. And so it was until a sound came faintly to my ears that chilled my heart and drained the cheer from my soul. It was the sound of chains. Chains made of cash boxes, padlocks, keys, and steel wrought purses. Jacob Marley's chain. And then the air was filled with the sound of clanging and jangling bells, although there were none to be seen, not even a cathedral nearby, though I could make out the distinct voices of cathedral bells among the cacophony. The sound of the bells grew louder and louder, unbearable to my ears. Surely those within could hear it? I turned to look within the house, but one glance told me that the clanging bells and rattling chains were for my ears only. I pulled the door shut and turned back to the street. Jacob Marley stood before me. Yes, he was still dead as a doornail and still exactly as Mr. Dickens had described him, looking as he had in life except for the kerchief tied around his head and the great chain wrapped around and around his body or what had been his body for it was now transparent and trailing behind him for a dreadful long way. And alas, behind him, filling the sky and my ears with their fearful moaning and wailing were those horrid phantoms that were present on the night of Marley's visit. The bells went silent as Jacob began to untie the folded kerchief around his jaws. Oh, Jacob Marley, why have you and these specters returned to haunt me again? I've changed, you see, I have changed, don't you? He removed the band from his face and his mouth fell a lacking noise. Mr. Scrooge, what you have seen, you cannot now unsee. Do you not remember on the night of my visit how I said to you that I had sat by you many a day and night, unseen and unfelt by you? I nodded. Every word that he had said that night was engraved upon my mind and my heart. Why it has been given you to be able to see myself and these other miserable apparitions, I cannot tell. Yet we will remain visible to you for the rest of your days. Why, Jacob? Why am I to be so cursed? Marley raised his chains and shook them with a fearful clash. Cursed? Man, rather call yourself blessed. I raised my eyes to the sky filled with restless phantoms wailing and moaning and dragging their ponderous chains. I shuddered to think of the length of my chain and did indeed feel blessed for the chance of releasing myself from it. I said as much to Marley and he replied with another deafening rattle of his chains and a thunderous wail. My own spirit quailed within me. Ebenezer Scrooge, I am come once more charged with bringing you a chance and a hope as I did before. But Jacob, I met with the three spirits and I have become a changed man. I took the chance and hope offered and see now the error of my life and ways. And while I was pleading with Marley, he had raised his arm through which I could clearly see to the street behind it and pointed in the Cratchit's window. 
Tiny Tim had come to the window and was peering out, looking into the darkness, I believe, for me, for when he saw me, he raised his frail arm and waved. I waved back and nodded and smiled. Look closely, Ebenezer. What do you see in the child's face? I looked. Tiny Tim's face was indeed tiny and pinched and white as thin as no child's face should be. The only thing not tiny about Tim were his eyes, which were huge in that small face and as black as his hair. Beneath those eyes and behind them and around his mouth were shadows that were nearly as black as I looked closer. There was something familiar about that darkness and I leaned down to look deeper into Tiny Tim's face and then jerked my face back as if touched by fire or by the cold iciness of death. For as I watched the skin of Tiny Tim's face become as transparent as Marley's and as I watched underneath, I could see the white of his skull and teeth and the black holes of his eye sockets and even where his nose should have been I watched in horror as an even blacker shadow fell over this ghastly sight. A deep black hood covered Tiny Tim's head and draped to the floor until nothing could be seen of him except one skeletal hand still waving to me. My whole body trembled, my legs so much that I nearly fell to the ground. No, Jacob Marley, this cannot be. I have vowed to save that child and I will. Tomorrow he will go to the finest doctors and I will make the Cratchit's home a place of warmth and light and plenty and food and... Although there was no wind this night, Marley's hair and clothing was waving and blowing about him as if the wind of spirit would carry him away. He was shaking his head from side to side and been, began howling in such a way that the specters in the air around him fled in fear. I clapped my hands over my ears and did then fall to my knees. There is not time. Why does mankind not understand that their mortal life is so short upon this earth and that if they spend that life in evil deeds and greediness and in bringing suffering and pain to their fellow beings, they will spend eternity in agony and regret and despair? There is not time, Ebenezer Scrooge. But Jacob, I know I'm an old man and that I cannot look too much time before me, but surely a few more years? No, Scrooge, it is not your time that I speak of. Oh, Marley, tell me that you do not mean Tiny Tim. Is he that close to death that there is no time to save him? I stole a glance back at the window, but was relieved to see that Tiny Tim had returned to his seat by the fire and was himself again. I struggled to my feet and turned to face Jacob again. How long? Days. Days? I could barely speak the word. How many days at the new year? I staggered and clutched the door frame to keep from falling. I gasped for air and tried to form words to speak. To not be able to save Tiny Tim was unthinkable. His death would destroy Bob Cratchit's family. And and all the light and warmth that I could provide would be as nothing in their eyes against the loss of that dear child. So much suffering and pain I had said was not my business, nay, even caused through the pursuance of that business. I choked out a word. You spoke of a chance and a hope. The ghost of my old partner spoke now so quietly that I had to bend my ear before him to hear his words. 
You are still a man of business as I once was. You are familiar with trades and with the exchange of one thing, sometimes something valueless with another thing, preferably something of more worth to yourself. Remember these words, Ebenezer, when the time comes, remember the value of your currency. My currency? Of what worth to me was my currency if I could not save Tiny Tim? And when what time would come? But even as I struggled to voice these words to Jacob Marley, he was tying the bandage around his head again and wrapping his chains around and around. His waist began to float upward and away from me. He never turned from me nor took his eyes from mine. And I watched him as he became smaller and smaller until he disappeared from my sight. Then I turned and entered the Cratchit's home once again and again, a changed man. Stave two. I had much to think of that night and so left the Cratchits in haste. I forced myself to show a face of merriment before them and endure their many expressions of thankfulness with a heavy heart. Oh, if only they knew what I knew, they would not offer their thanks to me. Tiny Tim kissed my hands many times and I had to hide my tears from him and his family as I said goodbye. Before taking their leave, I told Bob that the counting house would remain closed until after the new year, while reassuring him that he would still be paid for that time, and that on the morrow they should expect my presence to escort Bob, his wife, and Tiny Tim to the doctors. Their faces in the window as they watched me walk down the street were a study in baffled wonderment. That night I laid out my plans for the few days left to me. That Jacob had told me the truth, I had no doubt. Had he not told me with perfect veracity and detail all that would come to pass on Christmas night? I could not puzzle out the meaning of his last words, but I vowed that I would remember them, as Marley had said, when the time came that he had spoken of, whatever time that would be. Jacob had also spoken in his final words of my currency, and although I dare say there was some obscure meaning in his words that I did not yet fathom, my great wealth was foremost in my mind. Not because I had such love of it anymore, but for good I hoped to do with. If the meaning of the puzzle was that I should use my wealth to save Tiny Tim, I would do so. After much thought, I had a note sent round to my lawyer asking his leave to visit him the next morning. His word came back that he would see me at my earliest convenience. Need I say that my lawyer, Mr. Understone, was as cold and heartless as I had once been, and that if possible, he was more money-grubbing, flint-minded, and ice-sold than me before the events of the past few nights? After hearing what I wished from him, he was more baffled, more confused, and more convinced of my state of insanity than Bob Cratchit had been on the morning after Christmas Day. I took some measure of joy in his bewilderment. I told him that I wanted a third of my money to remain with me and that I would be paying for all the doctor bills incurred by Bob's family, be they for Tiny Tim or anyone else in the family. Another third was to be given outright to Bob as payment for all his years of service at wages that nearly starved his family. I could not bring myself to think of Tiny Tim. 
and the last third was to go to my nephew and his wife in the hopes that it would wipe the shadows from his wife's eyes and bring their child and any other children that may follow safely into the world. Mr. Understone took off his pince-nez and wiped his eyes. He replaced the glasses and glared at me as if I were some apparition. If only he could but see the ones I saw in the corners of his office. I off again and laid them on the ledger before him. He cleared his throat with a sound like the rock being moved from before the tomb. <clears throat> Mr. Scrooge, far be it from me to meddle in your monetary affairs, as if he had not been doing so for countless years. But surely you mean for these divisions of your wealth to take place <clears throat> after your demise? No, I told him I meant for it to take place now, right now today. And since he was speaking of my will, I wish to leave my counting house business to my nephew, and he may do with it as he pleases. But I hope that he will rid himself of its burden as quickly as he can set himself up in another business. Bob Cratchit is to remain at the counting house as partner until such time as they no longer wish to own it, in which case my nephew must oversee, and I hardly need to say this for as little as I know of my nephew, I do know that he would do so without my telling him. The care of Bob Cratchit and his family to ensure that they do not fall back into penury by the sale of the business or from any other uncertainties of life. My wealth left to them should be sufficient to protect them from these uncertainties. Mr. Understone was doing a very good impression of a fish, lying on its side at the fishmonger's, its mouth gaping open and eyes staring wide. He nodded his head and made a series of attempts to close his mouth and give up his fishy eyes. You will see to all this today and send round the papers for me to sign as soon as you are able and see to the dispersion of the money as I have directed. He nodded again, and I came to see that his impression of said fish extended to its inability to talk. I rose and held out my hand. Mr. Understone, Mr. Understone shook it with a fish's hand and I left his office for the Cratchits. It was time to see to Tiny Tim's return to health. Stave three. The hopefulness with which I started out on that day was not to be borne out. In the few days left before the new year, we went from doctor to doctor and from hospital to hospital. But Tiny Tim grew weaker and even his father, who held out the face of hope for as long as he could, began to despair. If he could see what I saw, the masses of wailing spirits crowding around Tiny Tim and reaching out their hands to him, they all would have been driven to madness and desolation. If they could see what I saw in Tiny Tim's face. It was the last day of the year and Tiny Tim was in hospital, but no doctor was treating him, even they had given up. It was a fine hospital, the best room and nurses that my money could obtain but there was nothing more to do than wait. The family clung to the last shreds of hope. They did not know of the prophecy revealed to me by Jacob Marley. Even now I could see Marley standing in the corner of the hospital room, bandage tightly wound around his head, never taking his eyes off Tiny Tim, whose eyes seemed to be looking back at Marley as if Tim could see him. I prayed that Tim could not see the specters crowding the room but I fear that he was now so close to their realm that they were visible to him. 
Earlier, the whole Cratchit family had surrounded Tiny Tim's bed, but Bob and his wife had at length sent them home, saying that they should rest and could return upon the morrow. I alone knew that there would be no reason for them to return. As the hours crept by towards midnight, first Mrs. Cratchit and then Bob himself fell into an exhausted slumber. I awaited the coming of the new year with an icy cold dread, as far from sleep as I had ever been in my life. At last, the city clocks began to strike midnight. At each chime of the hour, the specters wailed louder and their moaning grew to a crescendo that ended abruptly with the final stroke. The sudden silence was deafening and I raised my eyes from Tiny Tim's face to look about me. All of the apparitions, including, including Jacob Marley, were gone. I looked back into Tim's face. Was he breathing still? Did he live despite Marley's words? As I searched Tiny Tim's face for signs of life, I grew aware of another presence, one I had hoped and prayed to never see again. The dread phantom who had shown me my own death had come for Tiny Tim. As before, the ghost of Christmas yet to come was cloaked and hooded in the deepest black. Nothing could be seen of his face or any of his form except for that one pointing arm. As before, he spoke not a word and I watched in terror as he bent down to Tiny Tim and placing that skeletal hand upon Tim's breath, gathered him within the folds of his pestilential cloak. I was frozen with my terror, but the sight of Tiny Tim hanging seemingly lifeless over the dread spirit's arms unlocked my limbs. I grabbed for the phantom's arm and attempted to wrest Tim's body from that icy clasp. That arm clothed in the raiments of death was as bitter cold as frozen steel and as unmovable. Oh spirit, I beg of you, do not take this child from us. The spirit made no reply. Without a sound, it turned from the bed and began to glide across the floor, carrying tiny Tim I knew not where. Although the coldness of the phantom's arm was freezing the blood in my hands, I kept them firmly clasped there. Wherever this horrible apparition was taking Tim, it was going to have to take me as well. The ghost's head, or should I say, its hood turned towards me and inclined as if to look at my hands upon its arm. Then it seemed to give a slight nod and we passed out of the hospital room and into the darkness of the night. How we were transported through the streets, I cannot tell. It was as if we were still and unmoving as the buildings and street lamps sprung up around us and rushed past. I thought we must be moving for behind us came a trail of those spirits and ghosts and apparitions that had fled before the arrival of this most dreadful of them all. Their cries of anguish and fearful howls rang in my ears and surely must be disturbing the sleep of the city dwellers with ghastly deems and nightmares. Within a space of time, the length of which I am also unable to tell, we came in sight of my home. There was my front door, with its knocker again sporting the face of Jacob Marley, which as we came closer became the complete form of Marley, who raised his chains and rattled them fiercely as he threw open the door. There was my entrance hall, as dark and cold as always, and proceeding before us up the stairs was the hearse 
horseless yet locomotive I had seen on Christmas night. And here is my room, as cheerless and dreary as ever, and my bed with its musty hanging curtains and threadbare sheet and blanket. And there, over the mantelpiece, as before, was the face of my old partner, Jacob. Dread spirit, why are we here? Why have you brought Tiny Tim to this place? Still the phantom was silent, but now he raised his other arm and pointed to me, and then to Tiny Tim, hanging lifeless and white against the spirit's black cloak. Spirit, I do not understand you. Can you not speak a word to me that will guide me? Slowly the phantom turned towards the mantelpiece where Marley's face was still visible. But no words came from Jacob's lips. His bandage was still tied tightly under his jaw and over his head. Why did the ghost fasten his gaze if there was one under that ghastly black hood, the thought of which made me shudder, upon Marley's face? Was Jacob to provide the guidance for which I had asked? And then I remembered Jacob's words to me on the night of the dinner party at the Cratchits. You are still a man of business as I once was. You are familiar with trades and with the exchange of one thing, sometimes something valueless, with another thing, preferably something of more worth to yourself. Remember these words, Ebenezer, when the time comes. Remember the value of your currency. Now I knew what the ghost of the future was offering, the chance and hope of which Jacob had spoken. As if reading my thoughts, the ghost turned back towards me and my soul turned to ice. With great effort, I released my hold upon the phantom's arm and covered my face with my hands. Sobbing, I fell to my knees. When I had mastered myself to some degree, I turned my gaze upwards and forced myself to speak. Phantom, am I to understand that my life is the currency that I may trade for Tiny Tim's life? There was the barest nod of the hood. My life, but what was my life, which until now had been nothing but greed and evil and inhumanity compared to the life of pure goodness of this child? Ah, but my life was changed now. My eyes had been opened to the joy of living among my fellow men, to the happiness and warmth of giving and sharing and compassion. It was hard to think of leaving that life now. I had had so little of it to be asked to give it up now. But tiny Tim would live. And what about my chain, the chain I had worked on during that previous life that was now longer and heavier than Jacob's fearsome chain? If I died now, I would not have the chance to unmake that chain, to unweld its links and sever its weight of cash box of ledgers and locks from my spirit. I would be doomed to carry that chain with me through eternity, wailing and moaning with the other apparitions as we sought to intervene for good in human affairs as they and as I did not do in life, but tiny Tim would live. Still on my knees, my face level with tiny Tim's as he hung from the phantom's arms, and now memories of Tim crying as he saw the faces of his friends and neighbors at the window of their home, and of his little voice thanking me and blessing me, filled my mind and quieted my soul. 
I raised my hand to stroke Tim's hair and his cold white cheek. I kissed his forehead and stood before the ghost, firm now and steady on my feet. What must I do? The phantom raised its arm and pointed to me and then to the bed. I remembered how on Christmas night this ghost had showed me three of the city's poor people at a pawn shop where they were selling my teaspoons, my pencil case, the shirt from off my back, and even these very bed curtains. And I knew that this would come to pass exactly as it had been shown to me. I would die here, cold and alone, gasping out my last breath with no one beside me to hold my hand or smooth my brow. I fastened my eyes on tiny Tim's face and lay down on the bed. At once I began to feel the strength leaving my bones and I struggled to breathe as a great weight seemed to settle itself on my chest. My eyesight was growing dim, but I kept my gaze on Tim's face. And as I watched, I saw color begin to come back to his face and saw his thin chest begin to rise and fall. When he began to weakly move his arms and legs, the phantom began its slow drift backwards towards the door. And I knew that now Tim would be returned to his hospital bed and to the arms of his family and eventually to health. I struggled to say goodbye to tiny Tim, but my lips were stiff and cold. I tried to turn my eyes to the mantelpiece for a last look at Marley, but it was no use for my sight had gone. Blackness closed in and air was no longer moving in and out of my lungs. I was dead as a doornail. Now my spirit felt light as a feather and I left my body there on the bed and rose up through the canopy of the bed, through the roof of the house and up into the night. All around me were apparitions, ghosts and spirits, but there was a difference in this host of sky dwellers. None of them had chains. I looked down at my feet, trying to look behind me and around me all at once. Try as I might, I could not see it. It was not there. I had no chain. I cannot hear that story without crying. <laughs> I had goosebumps the whole time and I knew the story. <laughs> it was so wonderful. Thank you. I wasn't sure how it was going to go. I just didn't know. I mean, there was parts I was laughing and then there's parts I'm like, what? Wait a minute. Okay, so I loved it. I loved it. I hadn't read it before, so I was like, she sent it, and I was like, I don't have time this week, but that, that was really good. Thank you. It was excellent, excellent. What made you bring it all the way to like self sacrifice? Like, what, what was your thought process to to switch the story at the end, and then, and then, like take what he thought he was going to die and still suffer all those chains, but he did it anyway. And he, he didn't have that. So what, like, how did, 
whatever possessed you to take the story that way. It's like, I didn't know where you were going to go with it. And that's what I love so much about it. Cause I couldn't guess the ending. I'm, I have a friend who says I am possessed. <laughs> so she, says, she says my mind in here must be like stranger than whatever. But for, for some, I, just, I loved Ebenezer Scrooge and I just couldn't give up on him. <laughs> I, I wanted him to have some, um, I felt like he needed his chance at redemption and yeah. he should have it. <laughs> That's awesome because it's, it's almost like a story of hope that in the end you can just, be re Andrea cut it out please you're making me cry uh, and in the end you can have redemption I love that you did that I absolutely love that you did that self-sacrifice and redemption I love that it's so interesting because he thought he had to uh live a, a life basically exchanging his you know, his bad behaviors for trying to wipe him out with his good behaviors. And in the end, it actually wasn't that it was, you know, the the verse that says greater life has no man than this, than he lays down his life for a friend. And I was cool that you brought it to that. I thought that I, I just, the, I have, the, it's a very vivid story. You can't close it out of your mind. I can't That's wait good. to upload it so I can listen to it again. Cause you know, you're thinking <laughs> as you're, I was thinking about a lot of things as you were reading and I know I missed certain things. So I can't wait to hear it again. We talk about this all the time. You pick up yes. things. The reread is the rereads, the more you reread, the better it gets. And for, to, to listen to it on the heels of, we just finished going through a Christmas story. Now I caught a lot more of your illusions that I missed the first time I read it when I hadn't read a Christmas story for quite some time. Uh, even down to, I was dead as a darn nail. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> so good. I love the whole so thing. The whole fish section was so good. The whole fish section was like, yes, the, I, I, I was, you know, Dickens loved comedy and he, he inserts it in pretty much everything except uh, David Copperfield, right? And I, <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the fish part was really good. <laughs> it's so good. Thank you so much for reading it. When Andrea told us that you were going to read, I love when Andrea reads. She's an amazing, I she's like reignited my passion for books <laughs> and all of that. But whenever she said you, you were going to read your own book, it's just, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. There's nothing. I, I, you can't compete with someone reading their own, their own writing. Yes. 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 When you started, well, when you started to read, I was like, sorry, my son. Um, started to read, I was like, oh, I can feel like the passion behind it in it. It was so good. I love that. I say it like y'all can, but. You just did. <laughs> Mary, I, I, I don't know if you can answer this for us or if you want to, but do you have more writing? in the works <laughs> that we can get to? <laughs> yeah. Well, the one I'm working on now is actually, you would 
be interested, Andrea, because it's about that time I spent on the dig on the Anasazi site. Yes. Yeah. No. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wrote it as a street for this in my my proofreaders and everybody said no you have to expand this you have to tell the whole story so right. i'm turning it from a short story into a novel oh how oh amazing that's gonna be phenomenal i cannot wait do you i mean is there a time frame on that or <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing no Sorry. You can't rush our work in progress for a while now. (laughs) Yes. Well, we will be uh, ready (laughs) whenever. (laughs) And um, everybody has to read the other. There's, I believe, three other. Is is there three other stories in Peru? Yeah, there's four stories in the book. Yeah. I I actually put it on my um, wish list. Oh, good. So I I wouldn't lose. I wouldn't lose it, you know, like, cause you always say, you know, oh yeah, yeah. I'm going to get that. And then, and then you, you forget. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you will love wish. the other stories, Elaine. You will love the other stories. Oh, Mary, something, that, so something that I feel like you are, and, and maybe it's because, you know, all the, the things you shared with me whenever I met you and then your interest in the ancient cultures and everything, I feel that you are really good at weaving magic so somehow there's something very otherworldly that that you can just bring into a story without it being you know jarring or um off-putting in any way i i wonder if there's some of that in your upcoming novel but i sure hope there is (laughs) (laughs) i really enjoyed this uh does anybody have any other questions thank you mary and Andrea as well for, yes. for putting this together. This was the best Friday night. Well, one of the best Friday, Friday nights. We've had a really <laughs> few good ones. So yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for sharing that with us is a absolute gift. And I, I am so excited for everybody else to get to enjoy all your other stories and for everybody listening to the replay on the podcast. Thank you for listening. Mary, where can people find you? Of course, your book is on Amazon. Uh, Mary's name is spelled M-A-R-I and her last name M-A-N-N. So you can find her book on Amazon. Where else? Is there somewhere we should go to be following you or... um, do you have anywhere else you want us to be, basically? <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Facebook, all the all the usual ones. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>